Now, there's some uh, really thrilling stories uh, in the Acts of the Apostles as the gospel begins to be proclaimed and the church begins to grow. And amongst uh, perhaps one of the most exciting is what happened in that Greek city um, of Thessalonica. I may just say this point, uh, for some people it's Thessalonica, for some people it's Thessalonica, and I'm a Thessalonica man, I don't know why, but uh, that's what I grew up with, and if I try and change it, I'm only going to get mixed up, Thessalonica, okay. Well, uh, it, it's worth just reminding ourselves exactly what did happen there. Uh, and you get this in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and, and we read then, and this is um, uh, Paul, Silas and Timothy. Now, when they had pa- passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and the great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. That's what happened in Thessalonica. Three weeks, three Sabbath days, the Lord was there. Uh, And there are some commentators who say, well, he must have been there a lot longer than that. I don't see why that is necessary at all, because within those three weeks, the effect of the gospel was very powerful and a church was formed. Uh, And some say, well, it must have been longer, but if God can do it in three weeks, he can do it in three minutes if he chooses to do so. So, as a consequence, the gospel came to that Greek city. uh, 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 And uh, uh, it was said of these Christians that they turned the world upside down. (laughs) Only that could be said of us today. (laughs) Turn our world upside down with the gospel. Well, that happened there. Uh, in Thessalonica and the whole province was affected Paul when he uh, writes to the Thessalonians bear testimony to them he said I I don't need to say anything about you they are telling me about you the way in which your testimony and your faithfulness has affected the whole province there in Macedonia so that's a testimony and a half isn't it that Paul was able to make about them So a church is established in in these thrilling circumstances. But there is another consequence, and there always is. This is what follows, where the gospel is preached, where things are changing. There arises hostility and persecution. So much so that Paul and his companions considered it prudent to leave that city after three weeks and make their way eventually to Athens leaving this fledgling church to face the bitter hatred of those who want to see it destroyed right from the very beginning. But Paul there in Athens is ill at ease. Uh, He loves these people dearly. Uh, He's greatly concerned for them. He knows they're facing great pressure. Uh, 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 And so he's anxious about them. So in order to settle his mind at rest he sends Timothy to them 
and, and awaits eagerly Timothy's report. And Timothy comes back, and he's got good news. Certainly, he says, they are standing firm. They're still there. The gospel is being preached. The whole area is being affected by it. And they're bearing this faithful testimony. They are standing firm. All the pressure is intense, but uh, they're going ahead in their gospel ministry. But there was just one thing uh, that, that uh, had concerned Timothy a wee bit uh, about the church in Thessalonica. Uh, and, and that brought about was brought about because during that time that Paul had left uh, and, and then Timothy had come back with this report uh, about the situation in Thessalonica, some of those dear believers had passed away. And, and that had created a, a, a level of misunderstanding because one of the things that Paul clearly taught them during those three weeks was the absolute certainty that one day the Lord is going to come again. I mean, you can find that just reading through this letter when he, he, he says, for example, in the first chapter, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned from God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he had raised from the dead. Uh, and again in, in chapter 2 what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing it is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming and then towards the end of chapter 3 that uh, he prays that the, he, they may be established in their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So plainly, that was a, a very prominent feature of his ministry there during those weeks in Thessalonica. Uh, but in the meantime, some had passed away and they got the wrong impression from Paul uh, that they were to expect this second coming of the Lord during their lifetime. Uh, and sadly, some of their number had died and there was this concern uh, what is what what is going to be the situation of those who died before the Lord comes? Because they really did expect it in their lifetime, and, and so Timothy comes back with this concern about this problem that is troubling the minds of uh, the saints in Thessalonica, uh, and so. Paul, as he writes this letter, and he writes it full of joy and thanksgiving, they're still there, they're still being faithful, and it's a fresh and it's a vibrant, it's a lovely letter, it's probably one of the first that Paul wrote to the churches, uh, and, and he's full of joy and thanksgiving for them, but he addresses himself to this particular problem, uh, and that's what we discover in the closing verses of this fourth chapter. And he brings them comfort and he brings reassurance. He says, by no means will any of those who have already passed away before the Lord comes be missing out in any way the joy and the wonder of that great event when the Lord appears in glory. But the key question is this. He's bringing comfort and reassurance to them about this particular issue. How does he do it? What is the key that 
Paul uses to comfort them in their distress. And the key is there clearly in these verses that we're looking at together. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He's not saying you don't sorrow. That would be inhumane. Of course, here's an experience that many of you will have faced. uh, And if you haven't, you will almost undoubtedly, uh, before it's time for you to say goodbye to this world, of losing a loved one, an empty place at the table, an empty member of the family circle. And you've grieved over it. And sometimes, you know, the uh, impression has been gained that as Christians, we, we ought not to be like that. Um, we should keep this stiff upper lip. Uh, and that to feel sad at the loss of a dear one is somehow a failure of our Christian lives. Paul says that's not the case, far from it. But he says you don't need to sorrow like others who have no such hope as the one that you have and this is the way in which he reassures them if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus so we have if you like there uh, Paul's creed now what is a creed well it's a statement of faith It's a statement of propositions concerning the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, that can be recited. Um, Some churches actually employ uh, such a creed during their service of worship. The the most common one is the Apostles' Creed, for example. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, his only Son. And that is recited every Sunday in some church circles. We don't tend to do that. I don't quite know why. (laughs) No reason why we shouldn't. But it is a clear statement of truth. Bible truth. Gospel truth. And Paul puts it just like that. For we believe that Jesus died. Or in verse 15. For this we say to you. You can actually recite this. It's not some obscure, mysterious ideas that float about in the ether we can actually say it we can put it in words we can put it clearly we can put it succinctly we can put it with certainty for this we say to you by the word of the lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep Uh, and That's where Paul stands with regard to this issue. Uh, And because he says we believe it, and because it's a statement of faith, surely for us, who are also waiting for the coming of the Lord, and also perhaps having to pass through this sad experience of losing a loved one, we too need to remind ourselves constantly what we believe that is not some vague philosophy that can't be put into, into uh, uh, understandable statements. It is real, it's authentic, and you can recite it. What do we believe? Now you have a statement. If I can see it there on the table, we believe. That's what you believe. That's what you stand for as a, a, a gospel, grace-believing church. And you can read that and you can see there 
a set out of, of all the propositions that clearly set before us the truth of the gospel. We believe this and we need to be constantly reminded ourselves of it. It's one of the reasons why that was produced in the first place and why it's been made available to you uh, in a modernised version. We have to be doing that. And I, and, and I just fear that sometimes, you know, we, we want to move on to things more profound, if you like, more mysterious. That this is really a bit too basic now. We've moved on since then. And here's Paul, the great teacher of God's word, and he's saying, if you've got this particular issue, amongst all the issues that face the church in its early days and still face the church today, it rests in this one simple matter-of-fact statement, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He's setting out the simple truth of the gospel. That's where his confidence lies. And, and, and he, he will repeat that. I mean, that's what he taught. If you remember the verses we read from Acts 17, that's what he taught in the synagogues. Jesus died and rose again. Uh, the simple truth of the gospel. And his memory of them is that's what they received. Because he says, um, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, our gospel, this is his gospel, Jesus died and rose again, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So that's, that's what he's majoring on with regard to dealing with this particular issue uh, one that is a, a, a sad occasion for us, but our, our, our resort, our comfort rests in these basic gospel truths. Now, I'm, I feel very strongly about this, <laughs> uh, and you'll, you'll allow every preacher at least one hobby horse. <laughs> but you see, I, I, I just fear sometimes that um, we, we are making something of a mistake here. I, I, I appreciate uh, the ministry of God's word is a teaching ministry. Um, but I, I, I look at advert, adverts in, in the Christian press for Christian workers uh, and pastors that they want to come to them. And, and they almost always emphasize a teaching ministry. Well, of course it is. We are teaching the word of God. But there is a potential danger there because teaching, we know all about teaching. Uh, it, it's what goes on in schools. So you start off with ABC and you move on. And you move on to higher things and deeper things and more profound things. So you start with ABC and you end with Shakespeare. Or you, you start with, with the simple truths uh, of the multiplication table. One times two is two, two times two is... And so on, you know it. And you move on, eventually, if you're ever going to get there, to quantum mechanics. But the point is, it's a progress. So you start with a basic, and then 
inevitably you're going to move on to even deeper things. And I think sometimes I fear that in, in Christian circles with regard to the ministry of the word, there is that idea that, that the, the, the gospel itself, the simple facts of the gospel, Jesus died and rose again, that is the ABC stuff. That is for beginners. And we need to move on. And so uh, the ministry becomes really more and more academic uh, I'm more suited to bigger minds than I've got anyway. Uh, just to demonstrate how profound... Now, these are profound truths. I, 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 I don't question that. They are. There's a depth in the scriptures that we will never, ever plumb in this life. There are mysteries. Of course there are mysteries. God is not uh, subject to our strength and breadth of our minds of course he isn't but to somehow relegate the gospel itself to the mere milk and water stuff and we've moved on that is to me an incredible day and it's not what the apostles do that's the whole point it's not what the apostles do so here is an issue a real live issue a real problem that's troubling these folk in Thessalonica and Paul deals with it simply by reminding them Jesus died and rose again. <coughs> and, 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 and I would make the case that when you read anything of the apostolic letters in the New Testament and as they deal with all the various problems the church faces and there are many problems even in those early days it's not just you know, our experience in the days in which we live they faced all sorts of things but time and time and time again, you will find that the apostolic writers will point to the truths of the gospel. And that is where the comfort and assurance and confidence lies. Jesus had died and rose again, not least in this very real issue that, you know, is a, a cause of grief to us that somebody has passed away who we love. And we've got to deal with it. Paul says here, this is how you deal with it. You remind yourself of the gospel. You remind yourself that Jesus died and rose again. So we're in need of comfort and reassurance in this particular issue. Paul doesn't send them a bereavement counsellor. Uh, um, neither does he send him some sort of psychotherapist who's going to uh, help them to cope with their emotions. Neither does he direct them to something called mindfulness, but I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if you do. But we're getting that. I'm not saying these things don't have their value. Um, please don't misunderstand me here. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? when he wants to know what they're feeling, what they're doing, he sends them a gospel preacher, Timothy, to remind them of those very truths upon which they were founded in the first place and that he taught for those three Lord's days in the synagogue. Jesus died and rose again. And, and I think we are foolish if we let that just slip away from us. And I'm anxious about that tendency. I just want to try and um, 
reaffirm it with you, if I might, tonight, really, um, the gospel. That is God's answer. Not only to the needs of our sin, but of every issue that confronts us. It is the gospel we must turn to. You need to know it then. And you need to be assured of it. You need to be confident in it. And you need to fall back on it. Whatever you're dealing with, you need to fall back on it. And be assured, yes, Jesus Christ did come to this world. The Son of God came. He did live amongst men. He taught them. He healed them. He loved them. And he loved them to the end and went to the cross for them. And now he's in heaven as our advocate. And that is, that is the gospel, isn't it? You might want to just class it as ABC stuff. Fair enough. But not if you're going to relegate it as something that's of lesser importance now because we've moved on to deeper things. So... That's its very heart. Jesus died. When he states, we believe that Jesus died. There's a contrast here that is worth us noting. He's talking about the death of believers. But he doesn't use that expression concerning them. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. Uh, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who fall asleep in Jesus. And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He's talking about the passing on of believers. And he uses that expression, they fall asleep. Now, we, 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 we hate to think about death and dying um, and so our way sometimes to ease the uh, distress about it is to use euphemisms some of them are so stupid and ridiculous they're hardly worth mentioning passing away is a good one though um, but to fall asleep in Jesus that is uh, th- th- that is the expression that is, perhaps, of all the expressions we use to try and cope with this awful possibility that we're all going to face one day, is to fall asleep. And it's quite lovely, because if you think about it, it presupposes, doesn't it, when you fall asleep, it presupposes rest and repose. Uh, it, 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 it implies a continuing existence because when you go to bed tonight you expect to wake up in the morning and your life will go on tomorrow if God wills it it implies also doesn't it that uh, there will be an awakening so it's a very lovely way of describing what happens when believers die fallen asleep in the Lord Uh, and what comfort there is in that isn't there? Uh, and, you know, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus tonight uh, and you have to cope with this experience uh, and then face it yourself one day, to be able to comfort yourself with this, you've fallen asleep in Jesus. 
If you have no such confidence in your heart tonight, would you want to seek it? Would you want to know that? That when the time comes for you to handle this matter, you can say, I'm just going to fall asleep because I'm going to awaken. The morning will come, the night will end, and I'll awaken in the presence of the Lord Jesus, which is far, far better. That's the comfort and assurance the gospel brings, because all this happens, all this happens because uh, Jesus died and rose again. But there's the contrast, you see. He's talking about believers. He says, on these three occasions, they've fallen asleep. He doesn't say that about Jesus. He says, Jesus died. Jesus died. There was no falling asleep for the Saviour. It was the extremity of physical agony, which I suppose to uh, a lesser extent we can enter into, because we all know pain in some form or another, but the spiritual agony that our Lord went through upon that cross is something that we're never, ever going to get a grasp on. The agonising cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? All all the weight of the sin of the countless millions of his people resting upon his shoulders as as he bears it away so that those who know him as their Lord and Saviour, need not fear the judgment and the inevitable punishment for their sin because he has borne it. And now he bore all that. Amid, amid the experience of shame and degradation because it was, a, it was an execution calculated to be as humiliating as possible, Jesus Christ bore the sins of his people. He died. He tasted death. Sometimes you get that expression. He tasted it to the very last dreg in the cup. There was nothing restful or peaceful about when Jesus died. In the agony, the physical agony, the emotional agony, the spiritual agony, the full horror of what death is, the consequence of sin, born in upon him and he died but what it means in the gospel is everything because when he died he satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people he felt the full weight of God's wrath a holy God against sin He was a substitute there on behalf of all those who had come to put their trust in him. Jesus died. But that's not the end of the story. If that's where the gospel ended, um, well then we would have been all people the most miserable, wouldn't we? There's no hope there. But Jesus rose again, he says. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and that is the great fact actually if you read through um, the the letters at the through the the book of the new testament you'll find that's a, a fact on which the apostles major 
that Jesus rose again. That, that was the message which transformed their world. That's the message that turned their world upside down. This man from Nazareth, a nobody, a non-entity, came to life again. Uh, 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 and so they press that. And they say, that is where your hope lies. We have a living saviour. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. This, this great victory over death. Now that is, that is the assurance that Christian believers have. Uh, at a funeral, for example, I've been to lots of funerals, particularly in the last few years, it's a factor of my age. I've been to some desperate funerals, I really have. I've heard things say about the deceased which are blatantly untrue. Uh, I've heard uh, hope which has been given to the mourners which is totally false. And it grieves me to my core. Uh, I, I remember uh, there was one dear lady from our church who passed away and she, uh, she was cremated and uh, our pastor was to lead the cremation and so we went to where the crematorium was and we got there and uh, uh, there was all, a service already taking place, uh, uh, the one who'd gone before. So we had to wait outside and you could hear it actually outside and it seemed to be coming over some form of loudspeaker, right? And I could hear it. This, this man was a military man, plainly, so there was plainly, so there were lots of trumpets being blown and so on and so forth. But then they played a song. Uh, and this song, I understand, has become increasingly popular at funerals. And it's from the pit. You know it? I did it my way. I did it my way. It's a song about a man who totally, thoughtlessly, inconsiderately trampled anybody in his wake and was able to justify himself by saying, well, but I did it my way. That's an appalling truth. That's an, an awful thing to say. As, as if you can live your life without any consequences and at the end say, well, it doesn't matter, I did it my way. The scripture is clear on this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And I, I listen to that, and, and it, you know, it just, it just distresses me. But I've been to other funerals, <laughs> and there's still sadness. Of course, there is. There's still grief. Of course, there is. But oh, I've heard a message of hope. <laughs> really, have of hope. Here is a dear believer. And I've heard these words in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's a mixture of joy and sadness, isn't it, to be at such a funeral like that. And so I remember... I, I was privileged, actually, um, as it so happened, I didn't expect this to happen, but I was staying with some friends 
in the West Country, and it's about the time that Dr. Roy Jones had died, passed away, fallen asleep. <laughs> Uh, and, and so my friend said, let's go to the funeral. So we did there in Newcastle Emlyn in Mid Wales. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful occasion. It really, really was, as you can imagine. And I got home after that and I went back to work. Uh, and uh, one of the girls in the lab said to me, oh, you've been away for a few days. Did you have a good holiday? Oh, yes, I said. I went to a funeral. <laughs> Her face dropped, she thought she said the wrong thing. But I said it was the most wonderful occasion of many such occasions that I've been to. Because here is one who died in the Lord, fell asleep in the Lord, and now he was with Christ, which is far, far better. That's what the gospel means. That's why we must never abandon it. That's why we must never neglect it because if God did not abandon his son when he died he will certainly not abandon his people when they pass away you can be certain of that so Paul then writing to the Thessalonians in this lovely letter I, I really love this first letter to the Thessalonians Paul says your anxiety is needless you do not need to grieve hopelessly because nobody's going to miss out when the Lord comes the dead in Christ they will rise first and then we'll all join together and we'll be with the Lord forever so believing the gospel uh, that not only brings forgiveness of sin not only brings new life in the Holy Spirit but it brings assurance and comfort in the face of all of life's complications and problems. In fact, it transforms it. It transforms the experience of death. It makes it a, a glorious entrance into an everlasting kingdom. So, so when you're gathered around at the graveside or in the crematorium and one of your friends or family members gone to be with the Lord you, you find real real comfort there and with the Lord which is far better uh, and, and when you come to face it yourself uh, it's not something we look forward to but nevertheless this is you know is what it means because Christ died and rose again it means you'll be with him forever, which is far, far better. We must not abandon the gospel. <laughs> Please, brothers and sisters, do not neglect the gospel. When you come to look at somebody, in the goodness of some will come and make themselves known to you, and you're beginning to ask yourselves the question, is he the right man for us? Just make sure that he's a gospel man. That his heart is in the gospel. That he will teach you uh, and edify you in your Christian lives, but he will do so in the same way that Paul does it. By constantly reminding you of these great gospel truths. To be with the Lord, which is 
far better. So what do you believe? Where is your confidence? I mean, are you entertaining some sort of vague hope everything will turn out all right in the end? I'm afraid some people go through life just like, oh, I'd be all right in the end. God loves us all anyway, doesn't he? He's a God of love, isn't he? The, 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 the realities of what the Bible teaches quite clearly, what the Lord Jesus spoke about on many occasions, now that's all pushed aside because we don't like to think about it, the wrath of God. Um, and that's no way to live your life, is it? There's no confidence there, is there? But if tonight you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you can say, yes, he, he died for me and he rose again for me. You've got all the assurance you need. And if you can't, say that in your heart tonight. Oh, why not make sure that you can before you go out of that door? Why not? Because he lives and still he stretches out his arms and says, Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. This is the ultimate rest for the soul, isn't it? Surely you want to know that. To know that when your time comes, you'll be with the Lord forever and forever. And that is, that is ultimate security, isn't it? And you must want to know that. You must want to be assured of that. And here it is. And it's, it's the old, old story. <laughs> and it's a familiar story, I think. Well, I'm pretty certain for most of you. I don't know if anybody's come in for the first time. But I, I trust you will have heard it many times from this pulpit. Now's the time to make certain that you too are safe in the Lord Jesus. By just trusting him. Come to him humbly and seeking his gracious forgiveness. And then you know, along with that great multitude, there's so many that nobody can count them. You'll be one of them there. And you'll sing the praises of the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. The Lamb who gave himself for sinners. And you're with Christ, which is far better. Amen.